John Strang was just 26 years old when he was captured by the Nazis during World War II. His once athletic frame was wasted away to almost nothing. We're in full flight or fight mode here, and no one can flight. And it's animal instincts taking over for a lot of people. Being a POW was hell. For four months, John watched the people around him, fellow soldiers, medics, friends, die. They were freezing, forced to march for days on end in the worst winter Europe had seen in 50 years. They were being starved, and sometimes they were being outright gunned down. When they're marching along, they would get to these towns and the the regular guards would want to take a break. This is historian Duke Ritchie. He's talking about a particularly traumatizing event John Strang experienced as a POW. So what they did was turn over the POWs to the Nazi youth. And these were, you know, really scary people because these were like the 15-year-olds with guns, right? They wanted to sort of prove their mettle to each other about who could be the biggest SOB, essentially. With the older guards out of sight, the boys had free reign over the prisoners. And daring each other on, they forced them into a line. They were in front of a ditch, the classic sort of, we're going to shoot you and you're going to fall into this mass grave. One by one, single shots rang out to John's left. He could see in his peripheral vision that they were shooting people in the back of the head who were falling into the ditch. They were slowly coming toward John. Four people away, then three. He said at that moment, his prayer which was, God, deliver me from this, and I will devote my life to you. This is the only video we have of John Strang taken 54 years after the horror of that day in Europe. John is a Bible teacher at the Macaulay School for Boys, one of the largest all-boys schools in the country. And he's sitting in the front of a classroom full of 7th graders. You you boys are just a sight for sore eyes. Such fine boys. You hear me say that all the time. John's in his 70s gray-haired and portly, with khaki pants hiked up to his waist, and a wide red tie that's just a little too short. The best cook in the whole world is a boy, Chef Boyardee. That's just a little humor along the side there, but anyway. He's a grandfather figure, straight out of central casting, rambling a little, grinning at the kids. He's adorable. One more time, really. God bless you. Not a And that's the way everyone at Macaulay School remembers him. Religious, doting, kind. But it's only half the picture. Like all of us, John had a past. 
And it turns out the story that brought him here, teaching Bible to a room full of preteens, is much darker and more complex than anyone could have imagined. I'm Jacob Lewis, and you're listening to Yo! The Long Road Home. A lot of the World War II veterans did not talk about their service. It's a story about faith, trauma, and the secrets we keep. To know him and put him in that situation, it's really hard to think about. You don't want to think about it. You just don't want to. What is the legacy of the past? How does it change us? And can we ever truly outrun it? By teaching and by immersing himself in the life of a school that is endlessly renewed by new blood, he was trying to forget old bloodshed. He was married to Macaulay School and to those boys. We're all capable of great redemption. I'm a radio producer. It's my job to tell stories, other people's stories. And I've always specifically been drawn to narratives rooted in place. How a person's fidelity to a place and the people there creates a strange fruit. One that's hard to put your finger on, but undeniable. Usually the people whose story I'm telling are living. But in this case, John Strang passed away in 2003. But his legacy lives on due to his enduring impact on the people of one particular place in southern Tennessee. (laughs) This is the Macaulay School for Boys in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The place where John Strang spent most of his adult life teaching Bible and coaching tennis. I'm in chapel. The pews are full of boys in shirts and ties. Freshmen at the front with braces and backpacks and seniors finding their places in the back rows. On the stage, behind the speaker, is an elaborate banner that reads, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When I think of a Christian all-boys school in the South, Macaulay is exactly the kind of place I imagine. Like for me, you know, this is just a very, it's a very important work. I want boys to come out of here and be good boys and be smart and hardworking, wanting to make a difference in the world. And it happens a lot. Duke Ritchie was a student here at Macaulay in the 80s, and he returned 24 years later to teach history. He loves boarding school culture living on campus, being a role model for boys who are far away from home. This is not a job. It's a way of life. I can sort of imagine not being here, but it would, I would have to be in, like, Montana fly fishing every day or something. A lot of people feel this way about Macaulay. Not all of the kids here are boarders, but walking around, you get the feeling it's more than just a day school. It's a community, a home, a place where you leave boyhood behind and, as the teachers say, become a man. Athletics are a big part of that philosophy. Right now, they're announcing all-state wins. (laughs) 
And that team spirit, it's infectious. The kids are chatty and confident, excited to be a part of it all. But Macaulay wasn't always this idyllic. Here's another alum who remembers what it was like back in the 80s. We had a history teacher in the seventh grade who would call pop quizzes chips. You know, unimaginable now. We had lick day in history class, where if you missed a question, Coach Day would hit you with a paddle. That's John Meacham, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist. He wrote the best-selling biography of another well-known World War II veteran, George Bush. But back then, he was just another kid trying to make it through seventh grade. It feels as though you're talking about Thermopylae, right? It's just, it's just a different culture. Macaulay could be tough, especially that first year away from home. But one teacher really made a difference. The beauty of John Strang as a teacher was that it was about relationships. You know, it was about being approachable and about even being really liked. John Strang changed everything for boys like Duke and John Meacham. He was a kind of respite. He could joke with the popular kids and kind of control them. He could kind of lift up the kids who were quieter and shyer and really conducted a kind of boy symphony in a way that endures. You see, John just wasn't like any of the other teachers at Macaulay. He was kind and soft-spoken. He never got mad. You didn't even have to call him sir. In fact, to Duke and John Meacham and hundreds of other kids in Chattanooga, his name was Yo. So there is a Lutheran church across the street with a big parking lot. And apparently in the 50s, there was a guy who would set up there and sell yo-yos out of the back of his car. So the story goes that John bought one of these parking lot yo-yos and went crazy for it. He was learning tricks, teaching them to the kids. It became a thing. One year in front of the whole school, a staff member dressed up as Santa gave him a yo-yo for Christmas. And after that, people started calling him Yo-Yo, and then it just was shortened to Yo. And then some people would call him Yo, and some people would call him Bud. But no one called him Mr. Strang after that. John had plenty of nicknames at Macaulay. You'll hear people call him Yo and Bud. But to keep things simple... I'm going to stick with John. Um, so anyway, his classroom, the window, would, would have been about right in here. It's so, a beautiful day here in Chattanooga, and Duke's been showing us around the Macaulay campus. Right now, he's pointing to an open section of grass just a few feet from where we're standing. But people would often walk by coming back from lunch, and John would be in there teaching and the windows would be open, and students would interrupt his teaching and say, hey, bud, can I get a treat? Yo, can I get a treat? And he would get up while teaching and come to the window and hand you a piece of candy. So and just as Duke's telling us this, Andy, this is Lee Burns. Hey, I'm Lewis. The current head of school, Lee Burns, happens to walk past. And just like everyone else we'll talk to today, he regales us with his own John story instantly. And then he would take us out for milkshakes, and he gives a piece of candy and tells a Bible verse and just always encouraging and positive and um, just an amazing... John just wanted to make everyone smile. And unsurprisingly for most, this begins with candy. I first met John Strang when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. 
He was also known as the Candy Man, <laughs> and he would always hand out candy. Well, I don't know how that started. It wasn't just Halloween. It was all year. He'd always tell these little corny jokes, um, and the same joke a lot of times over and over again, but, you know, that's just one of the things that made him so endearing. Everyone's talked about the dollar bill he had on a string. He could put the dollar bill on the ground. As you would reach for it, he would push this little button, and the dollar would <laughs> jump right back in his hand. Uh, you, you wouldn't think you would do that at a at a service where the, the bishop was the, he was the last one he was real regal and he got right there and he kind of noticed a dollar he reached down to pick it up of course John zip <laughs> did it to the bishop. <laughs> I remember he always had the oldest car. They used to tease him about it. He loved it though. He loved being teased. We'd ride in the rumble seat of a Model A, and he had the, the we called it the Ooga horn, because he'd just play it throughout Chattanooga, and everybody knew he was coming. And I say, uh, yo, you're going down a one-way street. He said, Eric, I'm only going one way. <laughs> Talking to people here, John is an almost mythical figure. His candy, the bad jokes, the old cars... It's all the stuff of legend. And for a lot of people, this is the only John they ever knew. He hovered at the edges of their childhood, somewhere between a grandfather and a friend. They loved him dearly, and they still do. But even they could tell there were some things about him that were a little odd. He would wear heavy coats, these sort of heavy fur-lined London fog kind of, you know, raincoats in the middle of the summer. And uh, and then there would be times we still had on like a fleece jacket or whatever, and he would be in a short sleeve, like dress shirt with a tie. And there were other things too, details that were harder to put your finger on. Here's John Meacham again. You could tell as you got older that there were depths there. Uh, unclear what the story was. He certainly never talked about it. We knew, for instance, he lived with his mother. And there was something, it wasn't quite To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, remember Mrs. DuBose, who was the Confederate widow who sat on the porch in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. But there was a, a flavor of that. There was a flavor that there was a part of the story you didn't know. Like all the kids at Macaulay, Duke knew that John had been captured in the war. But it was just whispers, schoolyard gossip. And honestly, at the time, it didn't seem that important. All teachers' lives are kind of a mystery to their students. But since Duke is now a teacher himself and a history teacher at that, after John died, he wanted to know more about his life. Who was John before Macaulay? So he did what historians do. He started talking to family members, digging through archives, and slowly a story began to emerge. It turns out that John wasn't always a paragon of virtue and kindness. Far from it. I mean, he was a hellion when he was a little kid, they say. That's Philip, one of John's many nephews. I mean, there were signs in these yards around here that said, John Strang is not welcome in our yard. <laughs> he, I mean, I don't know what all he did, but he was 
He was he was a troublemaker from what I gather. I mean, I don't think he says John's temper was the stuff of family lore. Here's another relative, Sam. He, uh, as a teenager, was considered to be a bit of a rebel and a somewhat troubled youth, kind of rough kid around the neighborhood too, someone you didn't want to cross. Duke heard other stories through the family grapevine. John's brother Thornton wore glasses because John had thrown a rock at his eye. John ran over a kid named Hardwick Caldwell with a bicycle. Twice. He'd circled back a second time just to make sure he squared the tires over the kid's face. Duke couldn't believe it. His sweet, gentle yo? A school bully? A rogue, even? My favorite picture of John by far is him at UVA, um, which is this picture right here. He's just a stud. I'll say it. John was a stud. He played varsity tennis at UVA, and he was good. The guy was winning tournaments all over the place. In the picture Duke's pointing to, John's dark hair is slicked back. He's walking towards the camera with his hands in his pockets. Casual. Stylish. Smiling. For all the trouble he got into as a kid, by the time he left UVA, it's pretty clear he was turning things around. His family was religious, close-knit, and well-connected. He got a job at his uncle's brass-fitting company, found a girl. Life was good. All the boys had a vision that their lives would turn out to be, as we like to, to say in America, that each generation is a little bit further ahead than their parents were. And I think that's what they expected to evolve before the war came along. June 21st, 1941. With treacherous assault, Germany declares war on Soviet Russia. In the summer of 1941, news of the war in Europe reached a fever pitch. Hitler, buoyed by victories in Greece and Yugoslavia, did the unthinkable. In what is still the most powerful military offensive in history, over three million Nazi troops invaded Russia. With lightning-like speed, the Red Army assembled and went into action. All you have to do is look at old newspapers and, and sort of the, the commentary of the day. People are saying, oh, this guy's a nut. <laughs> if he's this crazy, he's very possibly crazy enough to invade the United States. And they looked ahead, for Russian winters are bitter. And troops must keep on a week later, John had enlisted in the U.S. Army. And he wasn't the only one in his family to join the war effort. John's father was the head of the draft board for the county they lived in. When parents came in wanting to keep their kids out of the war, he would simply point up behind his desk to the portraits of his four sons. They had all voluntarily enlisted. Everyone had to do their part. For his part, John became a medical clerk in the 99th Infantry Division, keeping track of the wounded on the front lines. If you say, oh, you know, this guy over here got shot and he just disappears, you know, you need to have a paper trail of, okay, he comes here, then he gets on this truck, then he goes to this ship to go back across the English Channel, he goes to this hospital in England, and they're, they're documenting each person. <laughs> so there was a great need for clerks. If it sounds like a cushy job, it wasn't. The clerks were stationed at command posts, way up on the front lines. And they were perhaps the only people there without the power to defend themselves. In fact, the Geneva Convention said that a medic could not be armed. 
So, you know, it's not a safe place to be. You could make the argument that absolutely the most dangerous job in the war was to be a medic. John was shipped to Europe in the winter of 1944. He was a member of the 99th Division. It was just as the tide of war was beginning to turn. Allied troops had taken France and were working their way through Belgium. I mean, we're talking about December. It's the worst winter in 50 years in Europe. Uh, Guys in the 99th Division later talk about, you know, walking in waist-deep snow. So the conditions are horrible. In fact, the situation was far more desperate than anybody knew. Allies thought they had Germany on the run. But dense snow and fog in Belgium, where John was stationed, made reconnaissance impossible. American intelligence failed to see 400,000 German troops gathering in the distance. Of course, the story of the 99th is that they become later known as the Battle Babies because they get attacked in the Battle of the Bulge after they've been on the ground for three weeks. No one has any battle experience. John was about to find himself at the center of the bloodiest battle in American history. Germany launches the the last-ditch effort with every ounce of force that they have right at the 99th Division. Probably the worst place to be in the 99th Division was where he was. In the early morning hours of December 16th, German forces opened fire. The assault would last six weeks and claim almost 20,000 American lives. On the second day of battle, in deep snow, a special SS unit, the brainchild of Hitler himself, disguised with American uniforms, surrounded John's medical station and captured his unit. That was when John went from a free man to a prisoner of war. The Geneva Convention of 1929 laid out detailed rules on how armed forces on all sides of a conflict should deal with surrendered soldiers. It covered everything from basic human rights to legal representation. The idea being that even war should have some kind of moral compass. 47 different governments, including Germany, agreed. But Duke found records from POWs in John's unit that describe a very different reality on the ground. There was one soldier in the group John was marching with. He was an officer, and a German soldier said, you need to go over here and help move this piece of artillery. And the guy said, that's against the Geneva Convention. You know, I'm an officer. I can't, I don't have to work. Blown away, gun to his head. And another soldier at the time, on this march with John, said, that's when I learned to forget the Geneva Convention, right? Like, there are no rules. The POWs began a 55-mile forced march to Bonn, Germany. They were terrified and hungry. And to make matters worse, in near-Arctic conditions, German soldiers were stealing their clothes. John told James Strang, a German soldier took his boots, and he said, well, can I have your old boots? 
And this guy had a pair of boots that were falling apart, but it was better than walking barefoot, which a lot of guys had to do. And he felt like that made a huge difference in his feet being well enough that he could walk. Or in the cases where they said, run, run, and whoever didn't run or fell down got shot, John was able to stay on his feet. Many soldiers in the 99th Division never made it to Bonn, Germany. But once there, John's nightmare was only just beginning. While family members back home were celebrating Christmas Day, opening presents and eating honey-baked hams with their families, he was on a train bound for a prison camp in Nuremberg. They're on the train moving around for close to a week, um, and they aren't allowed to get off of the train car. So just think about that. That means that they were uh, peeing and pooping into a helmet and trying to throw it out of the train car to keep some cleanliness aboard. Um, There's almost no food. And it wasn't just the Germans these POWs had to worry about. After a while, they began to fear each other, too. John told James that he saw a fight on the train car uh, over a one piece of hard brown bread, like a, like a fight that two guys got hardcore into for this bread. Um, this is, you know, we're in full flight or fight mode here, and no one can flight. And it's, it's animal instincts taking over for a lot of people. John's ordeal would continue for four long months. And every day the threat of death grew closer. Conditions at the prison camps were brutal. There was no food, no heat, and little to no sanitation. John was forced to sleep on the floor of a mule stable where tuberculosis, typhoid, and dysentery ran rampant. As the war drew to a close and the Allies advanced, John was moved to three separate camps marching miles between each one, getting weaker all the time. We don't know exactly when it happened, but John told his nephew Thorny that somewhere on one of these marches, a German soldier, just a kid in his teens, made John and the other POWs stand in a line. And then, one by one, began shooting them in the head. At that moment, as the guy got, you know, four people away and three people away. He said his prayer, which was, God, deliver me from this, and I will devote my life to you, to your work. And he got to the guy next to John, click, no more ammunition. And all of a sudden, the regular guards show up and say, essentially, okay, Nazi youth, you've had your fun. We're taking over now. And they march on. So that's the story of how he said this, this prayer, this sort of life-changing prayer that he never forgot. Incredibly, John's prayers were answered, and his life was spared. In the spring of 1945, Allied troops began advancing towards Berlin, liberating prisoners as they went. John was released to American soldiers in April, just a few weeks before Germany's final surrender. When it was finally over, He was too weak to walk away. When he enlisted, he weighed 160 pounds, and he told everyone that when he was liberated, he 
weighed 80, that's really rough, right? I mean, you're a stick figure. So to paint you a picture of it, it's it's joyous, but there's a lot of work left to do, right? Like you've just lost half your body weight. You're incredibly susceptible to all kinds of ways to die at this point. John was sent to a military hospital in Florida to recover. Why not Tennessee with his family? Well, as his nephew Thorny put it, so they wouldn't come back home looking like they did when they were liberated. And then a few months later, he did return home to Chattanooga. In the family scrapbook, there's a pamphlet that was given to John on his return. Its title, Welcome Back, Soldier. It's about 19 pages long, full of cheerful illustrations and peppy advice. And the closest it comes to mentioning anything that we might now recognize as PTSD is this, quote, a personal affairs officer, chaplains, and a legal assistance officer will be available to you for counseling on personal matters upon which you may want advice. When John came home, he got his picture in the paper. A baby-faced headshot underneath the headline, 11 Chattanoogans liberated from German prison camps. For years, this was as close as his family would come to learning about his experience overseas. Men of John's generation simply didn't talk about the war. Over here, speaking of World War II... After all, his was not the only tragic story in Chattanooga. This is a list of all the alumni who died in foreign wars, and World War II is by far the biggest. We're back at Macaulay with Duke, standing by a lush green lawn in the sun. In front of us is a huge brass plaque stretched across a red brick wall. These are a bunch of John Strang's contemporaries. So if you look, he, he graduated from high school in 1936 from actually... An astonishing number of kids, kids John knew, never made it home. We've figured out that fully 10% of the classes of 40, 41, and 42 died in the war. And these were... That's not even served. That's just just died. died. Yeah. Yeah. And so served, I mean, you're talking about, this was a military school and so was Baylor. So these kids had grown up as from 12 on marching and, and learning how to be in the military. At military schools like Macaulay and Baylor, which is also in Chattanooga, kids were born and raised to serve their country. They grew up in uniform, learning how to march, handle guns, and follow orders. Even before the draft, there was no question these students would enlist. And if they made it home, they were one of the lucky ones. Given all this, it's not surprising that John kept his trauma to himself. Duke thinks there may have been another reason, too. John did not return in a blaze of glory. He got caught. These veterans certainly, you know, were embarrassed about the fact, perhaps, that they had not really tried to escape. But these are, in real life, these were people who had lost half their body weight and they were weak. So that's just sort of an interesting thing to think about in John's case, that he he didn't talk about it, in part, perhaps, because... He thought it showed some sort of, you know, weakness on his part for having been captured, which is, in retrospect, of course, not true. 
John, it seems, wasted no time getting back into civilian life. Just a year after his return from rehabilitating, he entered and won the 1946 City Singles Tennis Championship, an incredible physical feat for a man who just a few months before had weighed in at 80 pounds. We know that he enrolled in seminary at Suwannee, a liberal arts college just a ways outside of Chattanooga. And there are some records that show he may have worked as a deacon in town for a while. Whatever his intentions, it's clear that religion was part of the plan. Perhaps he was keeping the promise he made to God that day in Germany. Or maybe, at 27, buckling under the weight of his trauma, he just didn't know where else to turn. But in the end, after graduation, he accepted the job that changed his life forever tennis coach and Bible teacher at the Macaulay School for Boys. There's one building on the Macaulay campus that bears John's name, the Strang Voges Tennis Center. It's an impressive facility. There are six huge indoor courts with bleachers on either side. When we arrive, practice is just getting started. Oh my gosh, those are like little kids too. And it's here that we bump into Meg Bandy. She's one of the school coaches, and John was a mentor, one of the people that got her started in the game. But she's also family. Her grandmother was John's cousin and knew him well. My grandmother always spoke very highly of him, and he ran with her crowd. So they were friends. They went to parties all the time. That was before the war, though. When John got back, he was changed in ways Meg's grandma didn't fully understand. And that um, everybody liked to hang out with him. So I think he was very popular. And I think he was very popular when he got back. It just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. Like, you didn't see women chasing him when we got back. John would remain a bachelor for the rest of his life. It's possible his first years at Macaulay were bumpy, too. Other teachers described John as odd and withdrawn. And Meg's side of the family had a very different take on the yo-yo story altogether. What I understand is when he got back from the war, his mood swings were pretty great. And the kids nicknamed him Yo-Yo. And Yo just stuck. Because of... His mood swings. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that could be, you know, family folklore or not. All of this is, of course, impossible to fact-check. Most of John's contemporaries have passed away, and the information we're left with is second-hand at best. There are no more archives for us to visit or diaries to read. And whether it's true or not, I do think this yo-yo story is pretty telling. Like, it reveals something about his transition back into civilian life, and it wouldn't be at all surprising if this time in his life was unstable. It also reveals something about how he became a different person as a teacher at Macaulay. The kids had a very different story for how he got the nickname Yo, one that involved old cars and Santa, not mood swings. Both stories could be true, or not. Whatever the case, by the time Curtis Baggett arrived as a student in the 60s, John was an entirely different person. Change is hard to come by in positive ways, I think. It's easy to come by in negative ways, but 
hard to come by in positive ways. And John Strings, it was okay to be a good good guy and to be corny and to be genuine and to have gone through very traumatic times in military and survived as a whole person. Just remarkable, remarkable man. And 60 years later, John's earned a permanent place in the hearts and minds of his students. Many of his students would go on to be prominent business people or politicians. He even appears in Ted Turner's biography. You see, before Ted was the media mogul behind Turner Broadcasting, he was just another seventh grader under John's charge. The story goes that one night, a student left the light on after hours in the dorm. So John came to get to the bottom of it and asked, Who's responsible for this light? And politely, Ted Turner responded, Edison T, sir. So John did what any teacher would do. He put Edison T on report, only to find out from the dean that there was no such student on the enrollment list. Seventh grader Ted Turner had gotten him pretty good, because as we all know, Thomas Edison was responsible for the light, but Ted had left it on. You were drawn to him like a a chick to her hen, because you just knew that there was going to be love there, whether you were a student or an opponent on the tennis court or a faculty member or whatever. He was very kind to the players that weren't that good and encouraged them. So he's a very big encourager of trying and doing your best. He called me Big Jackson Five. And so whenever I'd walk out the court, win, lose, or draw, he put his left arm around my shoulder. He said, good match, Big, Big Jackson Five, way to go. You did your best. He was loved by everybody. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He really could connect with any age person. I've never met a kinder, gentler person in all my 46 years, that's for sure. I mean, not even close. He was this persistent source of serenity and kindness and generosity and horrible jokes. He told the worst jokes in the world. If he told a joke that didn't work, he'd take his car keys out and shake them toward the floor and tell you that was just low-key humor. (laughs) I guess it was a delivery or something. And just that he was such a happy person. When Duke finished his research, when he'd been to the archives and spoken to the family, once he had all the facts, he put together an article for the school magazine called Before He Was Yo. The story made the cover, along with a photograph of John Strang, young and handsome, ready to take on the world. And this, I think, is where John's story ends for a lot of people. War hero overcomes great trauma to become Macaulay legend. And that is what happened. But for Duke, it's not the whole truth. Of course, I had even more admiration for John than I ever knew because I, I got a better glimpse of what he and his family went through. And, you know, also just as a historian who teaches American history, it was just this great example of how much so many people gave in World War II. The other piece to it, which is a lesson that historians often come to, is that John Strang was a human being and he was therefore complicated. And we make heroes out of people 
and sometimes we make villains out of people, and, and neither one is necessarily the case completely. I spent two days at Macaulay talking with lots of different people about John. And it's clear, he was a hero to almost everyone that knew him. I heard all about the candy, the bad jokes, the Bible stories. But like Duke, I couldn't help feeling there was more to him. I met students and colleagues, plenty of fans. But did he have any actual friends? Hmm, good question. This is James Strang, John's great-great-nephew who now lives in Colorado. I caught up with him on the phone. Everywhere we would go, if we went out, people would know him. People would come up and talk to him and say hello. But as far as him saying, hey, I'm going to go have lunch with so-and-so, I, I never recall him saying that. Yeah, it's like everybody knew him, but nobody, <laughs> very few people got an inside look. Was that, Would you say that's true? Very true. Everyone knew him. Hmm. Everyone liked having a two to five minute conversation with him. But I don't think a lot of people truly knew the ins and outs of his personal life. And according to his family, John's personal life was not without its problems. He didn't know how to handle money very well, didn't take care of his health. He was stubborn, avoided conflict. It was hard on them. And his house? Well, here's his nephew, Thorny. My sister-in-law is the only person I've ever seen to be a bigger hoarder than he was. Jacob, we went in there, and I mean, there was magazines, National Geographics. I mean, it was, you couldn't walk through it. There was a barber chair in there, a real barber chair he'd bought from someplace. I mean, it was one that was, you know, I said, how'd you, how'd you get it in there? You know, you know it must have weighed 250 pounds. John wouldn't let many people inside his home. If kids or colleagues stopped by to see him, he'd meet them at the door. But he and Thorny were close. Well, I should be able to. And one day, in all the piles of books and papers, Thorny found something incredible. And here's some cool, these are some letters we found that he wrote to them while he was in his POW camp. We're hunched over a marble kitchen island looking through a black leather scrapbook. I don't understand that. Like, I'm glad and I'm grateful that this happened, but I'm surprised that they would allow that to happen. In the scrapbook, pasted neatly next to an old newspaper clipping, are two small gray letters, each one about the size and shape of an index card. Thorny told me that under the Geneva Convention, prisoners of war did have the right to correspondence. And amazingly, even as the Nazis were committing genocide across Europe, they had a public image to consider. So every now and then, they allowed POWs like John to write letters home. Heavily censored, of course. If there was anything in there that was the least bit offensive to the Germans, they never went through. Written neatly in pencil are seven lines from John dated March 10th, 1945, three months after his capture in Belgium. Would you mind reading one of these? Let's see. Dearest mother and father, the other day we got two cards to send home, so I'm writing them now. Mark certainly came in like a lion, but that may mean it will go out as a lamb. Some trees are beginning to bud a little. The camp we are at now seems to be a better one and am well and getting along all right. 
lots and lots of love, your son, John. Can you imagine what that would have been like to get that? There was a period of time that that my grandparents and, and my dad and my uncles had no idea if he was alive or not. So just finding that he was alive. What was that one dated March 10th? In the last years of John's life, he opened up to a few chosen family members about his war experience. Not a lot, but some details trickled out here and there. And despite John's written reassurance to his parents, Thorny heard a very different story about his prison camp reality. You know, they allowed him to take a shower maybe once a week or something. And he said... First thing they did when they got in that shower was they checked to see if the soap was soap or if it was a piece of wood. Because if it was a piece of wood, he figured they were going to close it up and they were going to gas him. Thorny says John had trouble letting go. He kept a closet full of his mother's clothes for years after she died. Left her name at his address in the phone book. And there were other markers of his trauma too. The heavy coats in the middle of summer that Duke talked about. The sweaters in an overheating classroom. That's what happens to people who lose half their body weight. They go into hypothalamic dysfunction. Like their inner thermostat is just messed up. Their bodies never fully recover. I'm sure he had, from his war experience, some demons. I mean, there's no question. Because he, well, for instance, he wouldn't go downstairs in our house. He wouldn't go down steps to a basement. Mm -mm. Like like you invited him to and he said, no way? I'd say, you know, the girls are down there. Go down there. He said, no, I I don't do that. John passed away in 2003, and no one has any recollection of him seeing a therapist or psychologist. We'll never know for sure what was going on in his heart and mind. But it is clear that without Macaulay, John couldn't have been the person he was. I mean, those boys were his life. It was interesting. We would see him more during vacations than when school was in. You know, he'd be at our house all the time during vacations. He 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 hated vacations. <laughs> I asked him one time, I said, do you not regret not having children? He said, oh, I've had more children than you could imagine. In the last year of his life, after John got sick, he went to a hospital right down the street from campus. I'd go by and see him, and he said, I said, how you doing? He goes, well, he said, I look out that window, and I look up that hill, and I see the school building. He said, that's my goal is to get back and teach again before this year's out, and he did it. He actually was in St. Barnabas Assisted Living, but I think he was teaching maybe three days a week. John's funeral was the largest ever held at St. Paul's Church in Chattanooga. Hundreds of Macaulay grads, teachers, and family members came to say goodbye. When the eulogy was over, as they filed past the casket, each one left a piece of candy on the lid. If you can measure a man's net worth by The influence he had on people, Uncle John would have been richer than Bill Gates. 
Heroes and legends are wonderful things. They give us something to aspire to. A good, simple story in a complicated world. But if what Thorny says is true, if part of John never got over what happened to him in 1945, if close relationships were difficult, if he struggled in private, if we really want to honor him, then surely that story should be a part of his legacy too. I've been thinking about this quite a bit over the last few years. You know, if it's true that Yo had, uh, you know, severe PTSD, OCD, you know, whatever, it's, it's impossible to armchair, you know, sort of diagnose. But then it's even more remarkable that when he came to work, he was who he was, which was a model for how to treat people. Perhaps John was really heroic, not because he was perfect, but because he wasn't. There's this quotation that he had written down in his diary, which I used in the piece that I wrote. And I'm probably going to butcher it, but it was something like, faith is never so clear as when it wears its working clothes, right? Like when I put on my white suit and go to the tennis courts or when I go to Macaulay to teach Bible, I'm, I'm going to work and that's where my faith can shine. Ah. Hi, puppy. I'm on Signal Mountain with Philip Strang, another okay. one of John's many nephews. What am I looking at? All right, so this is the Little Brown Church. The story is that the Little Brown Church actually started on our porch. This came to be called the Little Brown Church in the Wildwood. We're at a church in an area called Summertown. It's close to the family home that John went to almost every summer of his life. It actually has kind of a summer camp feel. You knew that you shared the pew with a spider or two, and you would need some kind of fan in the summer, but there's a simple contentment about the place. John was never, <laughs> he was never attached to a script. It was his script. I loved it. You know, I mean, it was mostly he would tell his jokes and over and over. But After the war, every Sunday in the summer for years, John would give the sermon. And I mean, this place was packed. People just wanted to come hear him. It was, it was remarkable. And he After the jokes the and the hymns, yeah, and every single week, John would recite the same and poem. Do you know the story? You know, I mean, no one's been poem. able to tell, tell me. Well, I don't really know the, <laughs> I don't know the, it's a poem. Yeah. But the story is, you know, it's this old violin. In the poem, an auctioneer is trying to sell an old violin. It's in such bad shape that no one will place even a starting bid. So they're about to toss it away when an old man steps forward from the back of the room, tunes it, and begins to play. And I mean, he just makes it sing. And after he gets through... Here's the last verse of the poem, which would end John's sermon. Many a man with life out of tune, battered and scarred with sin, is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. There, in the little brown church, every Sunday for weeks on end, 
John would stand up and tell the story of the old violin. Cracked, scarred, and almost broken, but still able to sing. And for John, that looked like bringing levity, joy, and comfort to everyone he came across. And he did so with amazing fidelity all his life. Fidelity to Macaulay, the Little Brown Church, his faith. And though he never married, he ultimately had thousands of kids. They knew John in all his kindness and corniness. And now, hopefully like many students learn after they grow up, they can see their teacher in a fuller, more complete light. You don't have to be ashamed about being a cook. The best cook in the whole world is a boy. Chef Boy or Dean. That's just a little humor along the side there. Anyway... Yo, The Long Road Home was hosted by me, Jacob Lewis, and produced by Carrie Ed Harmon and myself. Editing by Rachel Aronoff. Special thanks to Sam Strang, the Macaulay School for Boys, Duke Ritchie, John Meacham, and the entire Strang family for being so willing to share their stories of John. If you enjoyed this story, please leave it a rating on Apple Podcasts as it will help others discover the show. And go ahead and share this episode on social media and by word of mouth. We all owe a debt of gratitude to the generations who have come before us. So if this story has moved you, please consider making a contribution to a veterans organization in your area and or the Macaulay School for Boys in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yo, The Long Road Home is a production of Great Feeling Studios. Oh. <laughs>